Welcome to the Breaking Into Finance podcast. My name is Craig Thompson, and this is the open source field guide to help you understand everything you need to know about breaking into finance. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. Back with Blaze and Olivia. Today, we're picking up uh, where we left off on a pretty meaty topic, which is discounted cash flow valuation analyses. This is something that I'm going to do my best to try to verbally articulate, but similar to what we did with the working capital episode, we have a video component to this as well. So I, I built a very uh, simple DCF model. In a lot of ways, there's other formulas that belong in here that we'll talk about in future episodes that I actually didn't even build in. I just wanted to kind of demonstrate the results and some takeaways. So we'll try to talk through it. You can follow along with the audio, but I definitely would recommend you check out uh, the YouTube link as well that you'll see in the show notes to help follow along. Last time we were chatting about the discounted cash flow analysis, we were really focusing on the discount rates, right? So remember when we were talking about like, would you rather have like 90 cents today or a dollar in a year? Um, you know, that, that type of stuff. But the net effect that you'll see here is that in your DCF model, you'll produce something called a discount factor. And the discount factor will tell you how much to discount future cash flows. So for those following along in the video, you can see that in this kind of made up model that I built, this made up company, we're saying it's gonna generate about $164,000 in free cash flow that we're projecting this year. At a 10% discount rate, we're effectively interpreting the discount factor um, to be about 0.91 next year. And that tells us how much, you know, that basically like the $164,000 in a year is worth about $149,000 in today's dollars. And then if you're wondering like, oh, like these numbers are like going down. Um, and if you're wondering for those following along in the video, like how to contextualize this, uh, one way that you can think about it is that they're decreasing by this same, you know, 10 percentage points in the denominator every year. So the math that goes into calculating 0.91 is we take last year's discount factor and we divide it by one plus the discount rate. The further in the future you go, in this forecast model, we're actually projecting like the, you know, the future cash flow numbers to be going up every mm -hmm. year. But when we look at the present value of those future cash flows, it's like kind of flat or even sort of decreasing at the end. Um, so we're basically saying the present value of you know all of this money in 10 years that's like way higher than what we're expecting to make next year the present value of that money in 10 years is about the same um despite being like triple the notional value um because at some point you'll keep decreasing things till you get to zero right like if we looked at like the discount factor of like the 100th year um you know, we're basically like, don't care about that money. Um, 
by the way, um, discounted cash flow models break if the revenue growth rate you assume at the end of the model is greater than the discount rate. Because if you basically assume that you're generating like an 11% return every year and you're discounting it by 10% every year, then those the present value is increasing every year by a little bit. And it's uh it's a divergent series in your, you know, the value of that business is infinity, basically. Um so your DCF will break if the final kind of like terminal growth rate of your business isn't lower than the discount rate. So the interesting thing, assuming it's a convergent series, basically like if you built a DCF model with like a hundred years of projections, how accurate do you think your like revenue projection is going to be in the hundredth year? Probably not super accurate. Total garbage, total garbage. Um, by the way, like your revenue projection in three years, it's like pretty hard to project stuff like three years in the future. Um, you can come up with a framework for doing it, but it's hard. And the further in the future you go, the more hand wavy your projections are um, and the harder it is to really quantify it. And so in DCF models, uh, we take advantage of what's called like a terminal year where we might do a five-year or a seven-year or a 10-year DCF model where we'll project things, you know, five, seven, or 10 years out into the future. And then we will basically come up with, with what's called a terminal value, um, which is that we will look at, you know, if we're doing a 10-year DCF, which we have in this example, we'll look at what we project in the 11th year and we're basically going to calculate a terminal value um, where basically there's, there's a property of converging series in mathematics where if you take like one plus a smaller number plus a smaller number plus a smaller number that are structurally decreasing by the same amount, um, there's a formula that is equal to the sum of that convergent series, which is that convergent series is equal to the value in the first year divided by, you know, what you're, you know, reducing it by. So in this case, it's the year 11 projected cash flow divided by your discount rate minus your growth rate. So the closer your discount rate and growth rate are, the smaller your denominator is. And so the larger your value gets. Um, so for those following along under these kind of made up assumptions that I made, the terminal value of this business from year 11 to year infinity, I calculated is about $6.7 million. That's based on a 10% discount rate and a 3% um, you know, perpetual revenue growth rate. What do you think ha happens to that terminal value projection if I increase the terminal revenue growth? Like if I change it from like 3% to like 5%, how do you think the terminal value is going to change? Do you think it's going to go up or down? It would go up, right? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so if this is going to structurally grow more, my 6.7 million terminal value went up to 9.6 million when I changed the growth rate from three to five. What do you think this will be if I change it to like 9.5%? So now we're getting dangerously close to our discount rate. You think it's going to be like, it's going to be higher, but you think it's going to be like a little bit higher, about the same higher or like more higher? Thoughts, Olivia? <laughs> um, I am not completely sure, but so so I changed. I ch when I went from three to five, this went from like seven to like ten. Um, when I changed the growth rate from like three percent to five percent, the terminal value went from like six point seven million to nine point six million. So now I'm going to change it from five to nine percent. Guesses on the terminal value? You it think it's going to be like? You think it's going to be like fifteen million? Like, what do you, you think it's going to be more than fifteen million? I want to say yes, but I do you think it's going to be? Do you think it's going to be more than like thirty million? No. It's fifty million. It goes up by so much, and that's because this growth rate is getting very close to our discount rate, and as the two converge, like if they're the same, the terminal value is infinity because it's an infinite series of values that are all the same number. Um, it's not like declining to zero. Like the business isn't declining over to zero. It's just like staying around forever. So then um, in, an in an ideal world, businesses would have their like growth rate be very cl close to their discount rate. Oh yeah. Companies would love that. Um, but you can imagine when you think about the terminal value, like how many companies that were around a thousand years ago are still here? I want to say not that many. <laughs> yeah. What, what about like 50 years ago? You know, like the, or like 150 years ago, even like all of like the major US railroad companies, like, um, I don't know, like what other businesses existed then? Like the, the musket makers and like the candlestick makers like there's a lot that like there's a lot that changes in 30 years um there's a lot that changes in five years all those crypto companies didn't didn't even make it for 10 years um <laughs> a, a, a lot changes and so if you're trying to tell me that a company in perpetuity will grow at a level that is in excess of its discount rate I say that is yet to happen in human history, um, basically. And yeah, so like if I change this to like 11%, um, I get this like nonsense negative terminal value number. It's really like, you know, approaching infinity. Um, and if I make it 10%, then it's literally infinity. Um, and if I make it, you know, whatever, 9.8%, you know, it's like absurdistly large numbers. And by the way, changing this like terminal assumption isn't affecting what I think is going to happen in the next 10 years. And so this is a particularly acute problem with very high growth businesses that are expected to grow like pretty quickly over the next few years is that let's say it really is going to grow 9.8% in perpetuity. The implication of that 
is that the present value of that terminal value calculation is so much greater than the present value of what I think is going to happen over the next 10 years that my DCF value, like my estimated value of this company is so heavily dependent on this like assumption about the growth in years 11 and onward that whatever I think is going to happen in the next 10 years basically does not impact the value of this business. Right? It's 98% in this case where I have assumed a discount rate of 10% and a like a perpetual growth rate of 9.8%. I get a result where the terminal value is driving 98% of what I think this business is worth. And this leads us to both the best and worst part of the DCF. Like the DCF valuation is the best academic framework we have for valuing companies. When people talk about fundamentally valuing businesses, a quality DCF in a vacuum is the way that intellectually it's the right way to value companies. However, the DCF value that we come up with is massively dependent on really bad assumptions. And so that actually leads us to a world where like in practice, in the world of finance, almost nobody relies on DCF models. When companies get bought and sold, bankers that are advising companies that are being sold will frequently, or sorry, will always build a DCF model as supporting evidence that the deal is fair. Like it's an important part of the story that, you know, I build a DCF model to support some other claim that I've come up with. But as I've kind of showed you, you tell me what you want this business to be worth. And I can come up with a DCF model that makes it worth that. Like if you think this company should be worth, um, I don't know, like if you think this company should be a $10 million company, I bet I can come up with a reasonable terminal value that makes it worth exactly 10 million. Um, and by the way, there's, there's a command in Excel for those following along that's called goal seek. Um, so I can set this equal to 10 million by changing this terminal growth value number. And it'll, it'll find the number for me. So in this case, it's 7.6597596%. Craig, you mentioned how bankers will build these models. Just like a question, background question, like how long would it actually take to build a model like this? Is this something you can whip up pretty quickly? Is this the the uh, result of a lot of research and data collection? Like what goes into building one of these? You can You can spend an hour or a month on it. Uh, it. It sort of depends on the quality of the input. So for, for public companies, it's pretty easy to pull historical data from them. And you often won't be able to build a revenue forecast that is informed by 
you know, like a blow by blow of, you know, what's going on with our customers. Um, so I, in this quick model that I built, um, I think I, I built this in maybe a little under an hour. Um, it was pretty quick. Um, I used the random uh, number generator function to generate a lot of these. Like I just said equals rand and I like kind of can't, you know, and if it was like a total nonsense number, I changed it. Um, but you can see like my 2023 revenue forecast is just based on this 17.5% growth number. I made that up. Um, so you can spend a lot of time trying to get to the quote unquote best, you know, or right um, growth forecast. And that's really where like a lot of the time is spent is like, is 17.5% the right number? Um, and so one of the things I included in this DCF model that again, we've posted and you know you can find the YouTube link in the show notes is a description of key drivers for each of these. So not just like, I made up some numbers and it spit out a value, but um, helping people think about like, what's the right way to project revenue three years in the future. And as students, often you'll just pick a growth rate number. Um, if you have access to Wall Street research, there are a bunch of professional, you know, financial modelers and professionals who really focus on a small, narrow set of companies in a particular industry. And they maintain valuation models for all these companies. And so you can get like the street forecast for 2024 EBITDA um, or free cash flow. Um, and then you might change that because you might think you have a, a different view or there might be some qualitative reason why you think a business is better or worse. Um, but, and I, I won't go through it on, on the audio version of this podcast, but you can see, I kind of briefly describe like, what are the drivers of each of these things? Yeah. Another question I had follow up again, I'm not an economic student. I study sociology. Is this something that is taught in college economic or, or math programs, or is this something that you kind of learn on the job once you get that internship or once you get that full-time job? It just seems like there's a lot of moving pieces here. And I'm curious when you actually learn how to do something like this. Business and finance majors will learn this as part of their undergrad curriculum. Um, and MBAs will learn it as part of the MBA curriculum. So if you are a liberal arts student, you are definitely at a material information disadvantage. Investment banks, private equity funds are very focused in the analyst interview process on trying to identify talent rather than like skill set today. So if you are not a finance major, you will get leeway. Um, like you won't be expected to know as much for sure. Like people in super day interviews will definitely tailor the depth and complexity of technical questions to your background, but it gets a lot more, um, in some ways it gets a lot more complicated than just like simple DCF models. So a lot of this, even as a liberal arts major, you are expected to know. Um, but if there's something you don't know, or if there's a term, like if you see like CAPM and you're like, I don't like, can you describe to me what that is? You will get a little bit more leeway where they'll be like, yes, like it stands for the capital asset pricing model. And at a high level, this is sort of what it is, but then it's on you to learn in the interview. Um, and it, you really need to demonstrate that whatever 
they're telling you that you're learning it as they're telling it to you. Um, so a lot of this functionally becomes on the job learning. In my case also as, as a liberal arts student, um, this was something that I learned on my own and I built my own DCF models. I think I built two DCF models on my own prior to starting work professionally. Got it. Yeah. Thanks again for clearing that up. I, um, DC, DCF models, by the way, very important for invested banking. You might get asked it in a private equity interview, but it turns out that like the people who are professional investors, like venture capital and private equity folks, will never, ever, ever build a DCF model because there are other ways of trying to more accurately forecast returns. Um, that kind of circumvent the hand wavy nature where frequently, like I, I would bet like even of like the best DCF models out there that exist, the terminal value, which is the most hand wavy, it's like the single most hand wavy assumption in the whole thing will contribute maybe 30 to 60% of the total final valuation in your DCF model. Um, so it just it's really frustrating for finance professionals when your worst assumption or the the assumption that you're least confident about is the single biggest driver of value in the model. So one thing I want to talk about with the DCF model, we've spent a lot of time on the discount rate and now we've spent some time talking about this terminal value assumption and the importance of that terminal value assumption. I also want to spend time on what these actual line items are. And in particular, there's a new uh, piece of jargon in here um, that we haven't talked about, which is this thing called NOPAT, um, which is not a condemnation of Patrick's around the world. Uh, we, still, we still like Patrick's and Patricia's, um, but NOPAT stands for Net Operating Profit after tax. And it is a really weird thing that people are doing, which is you can see that it's basically starting with EBIT and tax affecting the EBIT, skipping over the I, right? What's what's the I in EBIT? Interest. Yeah. So it's it's skipping over interest expense and basically assuming interest is zero in these cases um, to calculate net operating profit after tax. Um, this is a technical component of proper DCF analyses, and a big part of it comes down to trying to value a business independent of its capital structure. And what I mean by that is your net profit can go up or down depending on how much debt you borrow, right? If you borrow more debt, then you owe more interest on that debt, you have higher interest expense, and that lowers your earnings. And so the, the idea in this DCF model is we are calculating NOPAT, our net operating profit after tax, because we want to separate out their performance of this business from a decision that you know somebody made at some point about whether to borrow money versus you know issuing equity or however they got the initial capital. Um, so calculating NOPAT instead of 
net income. And then the one other thing I wanted to talk about here are these adjustments. Um, this is something we've talked a little bit about before, but basically the idea with these adjustments is correcting cash discrepancies between projected free cash flow and net income. And so we're adding back depreciation and amortization expense from our EBIT because these are non-cash expenses. We're adding back, in this case, I added back stock-based compensation. So if you pay your employees a combination of like cash salary, plus they get some stock, the idea is if you didn't pay them stock, they'd probably request more cash salary. Um, and so it's part of compensation expense, but there's no cash that changes hands. Um, capital expenditures, you have to subtract because if you're structurally spending money um, to buy new equipment, then that will not, those cash payments will not appear on your income statement, but it is cash that's out the door. And then lastly, to the extent that our networking capital increases every year, we have to subtract those increases. And that was something that we talked about more in the working capital episode. The last thing I want to talk about on kind of like these DCF mechanics is that once we've taken our NOPAT, which is our net operating profit after tax, which we calculated as our EBIT and then tax affected, we're ignoring interest expense. Um, and after we've made all of these adjustments for um, things that do or don't impact cash um, to calculate our projected free cash flow, we get to something that's called our unlevered free cash flow, which might beg the question, what is levered free cash flow? Um, to which I ask, given, given the logic that we used to calculate NOPAT instead of our net income, what do you think it means to be unlevered versus levered free cash flow? This might be completely far-fetched, but could it be like based on if you use NOPAT or not, or? Yeah, no, that that's right. And, and the idea there is that when people talk about leverage, leverage is basically code for there's debt involved. Like if there is leverage, that means that there is borrowed money that was used to do something. And so if you have leverage, then you have debt. And if you have debt, then you have interest expense. And when we calculated our NOPAT, we specifically excluded interest expense. Um, so that's that's basically the idea between levered and unlevered free cash flow. So unlevered free cash flow means we took out the impact of leverage. And leverage free cash flow means we included the impact of leverage. So then the, the last piece of the puzzle here is we took these unlevered free cash flows, which is our projected free cash flow, you know, however many years into the future. Um, if it's a 10-year DCF model, it's 10 years into the future. And then we apply our discount rate and our discount factor to calculate the NPV, which stands for the net present value of those future cash flows. And NPV, PV, same thing, net present value, present value. Um, they both imply kind of like you're taking some future money and you're discounting the future money to try to make it an apples to apples comparison 
with today money. Um, so the way to interpret, for example, in this model, again, if you're following along in the, in the YouTube, we have an unlevered free cash flow projection in three years of $236,000. When we apply this discount rate, the NPV of that $236,000 is about $177,000. And so the way to interpret that is that given this company's cost of capital and their discount rate, that company is indifferent between having $177,000 of cash today and having $236,000 of cash in three years. That's the interpretation. In Midcore, one of the things we we learned about, and Olivia can attest, is um is like the use of AI now. Yeah. And there's all these new AI programs that can basically write any formula for you. You just tell it tell it what you want. And I'm curious how that might impact you know the relevance of these skills. Even um anyway, so, um it matters for a few things. First, let's say there was a perfect AI that could build your models for you. Um, one, you would have to be incredibly detailed and specific about how you wanted that model to get built, what sensitivities you'd want to be able to like have it, you know, kind of preset up. And you will get asked questions about model drivers and you'll be asked to like flow through like how a single change impacts everything in your model. And so if you didn't build the model, it can be very complicated to figure out what all of the formulas are that are driving all this stuff. Um, and part two, I would be willing to bet that you will be more accurate at correctly assigning the model drivers if you build it yourself than if you meticulously and accurately tell the AI in words like, can you please build me a forecast model for a company that includes revenue, cost of sales, gross profit, SGNA expense, EBITDA, depreciation, amortization, tax rate, interest expense, all these other line items. Um, then you specify all of the balance sheet line items that you want. Then you specify the free cash flow line items that you want. You'd have to tell this, you know, Excel AI tool that doesn't yet understand finance and financial modeling you would have to describe the formula linkages in every cell for every year to the AI. Um, and then you would have to, within each of these sub formulas, have all of these side calcs that are kind of... So the long story is at some point there will be AI that can build good financial models in Excel, but that doesn't exist today. Um, and it is unlikely to be useful even when it does exist because nobody just in V1 builds the final model that never changes. Like people are always asking for like new sensitivity analyses, um, changes to particular numbers. You might have to refresh your whole model if you built it based on information that was like as of March, but then at June you have three months of like new information um, and you want to revalue the company or change assumptions. And it is very hard to spontaneously regenerate those models um, in any given period. Um, 
And if you were trying to build these, this kind of like AI driven Excel model, it's also really difficult to get adequate training data for those models because all of these models are typically confidential. Um, and it's exceedingly rare that you can find publicly available versions of these models to use to train your data. So it's fascinating. Yeah. No, I appreciate uh, it. Thank you. A, a long winded way of saying I am, I do definitely think that AI assisted Excel model building. Um, and by the way, like we might not still be using Excel for this in 30 years. We might be using something else, but some human, like human enabled AI, I think is going to be a big part of this. But I think it is very hard to get rid of the human component because you don't just care about the result. You care about the steps that got you to the result in a way that, you know, if you ask like ChatGPT um, for a piece of information, it will give it to you. And then if you ask them, how did you get this? Or like, why is this the answer? The, the black box nature of large language models today make it very difficult for those models to explain how and why they produce that result. Um, and so also critically, as it relates to people entering the space, you 100% have to know how the models are supposed to work, um, even if it got built for you. Because if somebody asks you to change something, you need to know, you know, the ramifications of that change. So people aren't going to be saved from learning these skills just yet. <laughs> no, no, sadly. Yeah, sadly, you have to, you have to learn this yourself. In a lot of ways to really understand the DCF, you have to build one yourself and you have to wrestle a little bit with the formulas. But does this, at least at a high level, help you think about what the DCF model is and how it works. And if somebody like asked you a DCF question, you could sort of wriggle your way through. Yeah. I think the visual component was, was key to, okay. to understanding it. I slightly worry about someone who just listens like fully seeing what it looks like and kind of putting the pieces together. But for those who do tune into the video, maybe it's recording another quick intro. Like we really recommend you watch yeah. this video because yeah, this this, is this just, isn't pen and paper. This is you just this is like blaze a blaze recommended. <laughs> yeah, from one well, learner to another, I, I recommend you. Uh, blaze says, yeah, friends don't let friends <laughs> listen to the audio only. Right. So now that we have talked about the DCF model, I want to give you guys a real Goldman interview question related to the DCF. Um, just to see how well we understand some of this stuff. And also to give an example of like the type of technical interview question that you might get asked. Um, so the question I want to ask you, and this is a question that when I was an associate at Goldman and I was interviewing analysts, this is a real technical question that I've asked people, um, which is if the corporate tax rate changed from 21% to 30%, which elements in a DCF will change? Would NOPAT change? Yes. Why? Because our tax rate changed? Yes. Well, yes. NOPAT is the net operating profit after tax, right? So if you include a change in the tax, then we'd have to change that number. 
100%. Yes. Do any other elements of a DCF change as a result of tax rate? As, as a hint, when we were going through the DCF work, I added a very important caveat at one point where I assumed that there were no taxes. Um, but this, this will have an impact. Did it have something to do when you said that there was zero interest or was it, it was assumed that there was zero interest or is that? It is related to that. Yes. How, how did we, and I know we haven't gone through this in a, in a ton of detail, but we went through it in enough. Um, how do we calculate our discount rate? Or what are the components of a discount rate? So one thing we said is that our discount rate for this DCF model is equal to our weighted average cost of capital. And is there anything tax related that might impact our cost of capital? That Olivia, as you mentioned, might have to do with interest. Wait, Craig, can you repeat that question? Yeah. Um, um, so, so the the initial technical question was, if the corporate tax rate changes, yeah, what elements of a DCF will change? And you correct you, you and you correctly identified um, that the free cash flow will change because our NOPAT changes because our NOPAT is net operating profit after tax, and. There is one other element of our DCF that's going to change. I'm giving you that that element is the discount rate. And the question is why? So hit number one is that it has to do with the discount rate. Hit number two is that our discount rate is equal to our weighted average cost of capital. So the cost of capital is going to change with the corporate tax rate changing, right? Yes, but why? Would it be because the cost of debt would change? Yes. Why? Tax shields? Yes, tax shields. So when we are calculating and we're trying to estimate our cost of debt for the purposes of a DCF analysis, it is our after-tax cost of debt. So if we borrow money at 6% interest, but we have a 30% tax rate, there is a tax shield on the money that we're borrowing. Um, so our pre-tax cost of debt would be 6% in this example, but our after-tax cost of debt would be only like 4%. Because if we have a 30% tax rate, then for every dollar of interest that we pay to the investors you know, who we borrowed the money from, we are able to avoid paying 30 cents in taxes to the tax man. And as a result, for every dollar that we borrow, we only have to pay, we like net only have to pay 70 cents on that dollar out. Because we pay a dollar out in interest to the investors, but we save 30 cents from not having to pay taxes if we assume a 30% tax rate. And so the existence of tax deductibility and interest expense allows us to say that our 
after-tax cost of debt is actually lower than you know whatever rate we borrow money at. So if that's a sample interview question, I said, no, Pat, that would work as part of the answer. And then the other, you know, if you brought up this discount rate, but the, the interviewer would kind of ask like, why are you saying this? Why, why, why? Until you get to like the very core reason why, like you'll be pestered until you give them like the central answer. Yeah. Cause if you don't know the central answer, then you're guessing. Um, yeah. And so there's a difference between a lucky guess and knowing, um, which by the way, is like that, that is like a number one piece of interview advice is do not try to BS your interviewer. I don't care if you are like the prodigy of financial modeling, you know, from Harvard or Princeton or Wharton or like wherever, and you've been building DCF models and like investing capital, like since you were 11, I guarantee you that every second year analyst just can run circles around, you know, whoever you are in terms of what you know. Um, and if you're listening to this, you're probably not that person. Um, and so really like, don't try to BS people. Like you can say like, I think it's this because of this, but I'm not sure if you declaratively are like, it's this and I know, and they ask you why, and you can't tell that is a very bad look. Greg, are these like, do you, are these interviews like timed? Like, would you have a specific amount where, I mean, you obviously would give, you know, the interviewee like a few seconds to think about it, but are you like, all right, you got like 15 seconds or if like someone's thinking about no, it. No. Oh my God. 15 seconds. I, I don't think I, <laughs> I don't think I could answer a lot of these 15 seconds. Um, typically super day interviews and pretty much any interview is timed at 30 minutes in length because the person who's interviewing you is super busy and only has that much time to spare. So functionally for these technical interviews, it's like, how many can you answer in 30 minutes? Hmm. Um, and when you need hints, at what level of hint did you need to get to that answer? Right. People will also ask brain teasers, but I think brain teasers are terrible interview questions. Like it just doesn't tell you a lot about the person. Um, I low-key feel like a big part of like the analyst role because you do a lot of stuff in PowerPoint is I would much rather ask people to like take some data and make a pretty visual, like a pretty visualization of that data, I think is like much more important than like stupid freaking brain teasers. Um, but that's just me. Um, and unfortunately, other people who make hiring decisions think brain teasers matter. So that's why there's a whole cottage industry around it, I guess. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to check out our website, breakingintofinancepodcast.com, where you can submit questions, join our Substack to stay up to date on new content releases, and much, much more. We'll see you next time.